0: Hi, I'm Nikki Robbins, I'm the Viticultural Development Officer for Barossa Grape & Wine Association. Welcome to our Wildlife for Wine podcasts, a series brought to you by Barossa Grape & Wine. With a keen eye for some of the smallest forms of wildlife in the vineyard, agroecologist Dr. Mary Ritalik has made some interesting observations while surveying insects and spiders on three wildlife for wine properties in Barossa. Mary is a third generation viticulturist and agricultural scientist. With a PhD in Viticulture and Plant Protection, she also has qualifications in Conservation and Park Management, Natural Resource Management, Education, Viticulture and Arbitration. She is currently rolling out the Eco Vineyards Project across South Australia and amongst her many memberships and directorships, she is also a Director of Wine Australia. Sean Koleski is the owner and winemaker of Laughing Jack Wines, which incorporates 17 hectares of vineyard which he also manages. Growing up in a family vineyard and with his keen knowledge of birds, Sean's love of wildlife extended into the vines. Improving soil health has been a strong focus for Sean and this has led Laughing Jack to adopt organic management strategies. Sean believes this management system has paved the way for better water retention throughout the vineyards, which has been especially evident in the dry period we have just come out of. As we walk through the hilly mop of vineyard in the northern Barossa, Sean begins by describing his transition to organics and the results for biodiversity and establishing global markets.
1: About 15 or so years ago, I made the move from uh, cutting out all chemicals um, and going to more of a sustainable uh, viticultural program, and and I found that that has really helped with the overall biodiversity within the Within the vineyard,
0: and what do you mean by biodiversity in the vineyard? What, what do you mean by that exactly? What what benefit is is that to the vineyard?
1: I mean, we talk about say wine quality. Um, obviously, probably the weather is uh, the one that uh, has the final say, but um, but certainly vineyards is you know probably certainly one of the most important aspects. And so, if you've got healthy soil biota and um, and things working uh, for uh, the benefit uh, of, of the vineyard. What I find is when, when you have a very healthy um, biodiversity, you need obviously less chemicals. I think the soil holds nutrients and, and, and water tension better. Certainly in terms of the way the climate is now with you know the climate changing and, and certainly the, the rainfall, um, certainly in the last two years, has been very low. Um, I find that uh, by having a, a very healthy ecosystem and and that natural biodiversity in the vineyard actually it actually you can grow grapes with with less less need for water obviously with certain insects um, you can have sort of some quite damaging insects that can cause problems within the vineyard so I just find by having very healthy soils um, there's a natural tendency for more beneficial insects within the vineyard and again that. Uh, by by doing that again, keeping out um, keeping out um, insecticides, pesticides, and herbicides. So I think that that uh, that is very beneficial.
0: Yes. Yeah, so as well as being you know good for the growing of the grapes, is that important to the marketing of your wine? That story of your wine as well. Are people becoming consumers becoming more aware of what they're drinking? Do you think? And where where that where that food source is coming from?
1: The answer to that is yes. Certainly, I agree that they are wanting to know more about where their product comes from, uh, and I like to see that continue because I think Europe still leads the way there. But I think in Australia we're, we're, we're certainly closing the gap, and and I feel that um, I feel that uh, yeah, people are certainly conscious of um, what they're drinking.
0: Yeah, perhaps we'll um, have a chat to Mary now, Mary. Um, With the Wildlife for Wine project, obviously we've been able to get you to do an arthropod survey on Sean's property. Did you want to just, I guess, outline why we would do um, an arthropod survey on on a vineyard property? What are you looking for? So I looked at
2: um, three sites throughout the Barossa, both at um, Stonewall and and Mopper, and we looked at a range of different vegetation types. So we looked at vineyards to see what was there as a baseline and um, then we were able to compare that with two lots of uh, re-vegetated area and also some remnants uh, which we can see here at Shaun's place. I was able to then go through and have a look at uh, what uh, types of um, predatory arthropods were there. So that's looking at insects and and spiders that we can collect using a range of different collection methods and it gives us some really important insights to the diversity of the insects that we're, we're seeing in these vineyards So I came in two dates in November and the weather was a little bit like today, a little bit windy and and rainy. But we saw a diversity of good bugs, uh, insects and spiders that um, a lot of the great growers will be familiar with. So um, uh, green and uh, brown lacewings, uh, ladybird beetles, um, orb spiders. But the real surprise to me was um, we found a tremendous number of um, uh, predatory shield bugs, which is just so fantastic to see in the Barossa.
0: Mary I was going to ask you about, we're here on um, Sean Koleski's property out at Mopper, and where there's about a 30% um, 30 area that's been
1: regenerated regenerated. as well as revegetation.
0: So that's quite a lot compared to I guess the average of the Barossa overall. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah I think um, when we're looking at property scale To be able to enhance
2: the biodiversity is just so important because we're essentially future-proofing our vineyards, we're building resilience in these systems so that they're able to better adapt after change and sometimes that change can also be extreme weather events. With that 30% that Sean mentioned, it's also an interesting figure when we start looking at a broader landscape scale, which is um, also aligned really you know, closely with the work that the Barossa's been doing with the Creating Resilient Landscapes project. And we know that 30% of um, natural vegetation cover is needed to stop species loss. So it's a really good marker um, in terms of what we can all aspire to on that broader landscape scale. Do you know the figure for the Barossa? At the moment I think the, the figure for many of the vineyards is um, around about 10% or a little bit less than 10%. You know, if we can collectively look at how we can build the functional biodiversity on on individual properties, start looking then at um, vegetation corridors and how we can link those properties up and then start to look at that broader landscape scale, then that's something we can all
0: aspire to, is to try and get closer to that 30% benchmark. So Mary, you've done a lot of research on, um, you know, what plants attract beneficial insects and predatory insects into vineyards. Can you talk a bit about those? Yeah, sure. Um, so I've had a real
2: passionate interest for ways that we can build biodiversity, but looking at the ways that those plants provide lots of functional benefits to grape growers. So one of those aspects is, um, the capacity of those plants to provide um, habitat for good bugs so when we're looking at insectary plants we're looking at their capacity to to flower that provides a food source so nectar and pollen Um, also provides shelter and a source of alternative prey so they're the types of attributes that we're looking for when we're looking at insectory plants and we're interested um, to have a whole range of plants that will come in and flower at different times so that we don't have just a, a burst of resources and then they drop off but that we can maintain that throughout the whole of the year. We've had some really pioneering work in the Barossa Valley. Some of the growers, including Henschke, have pioneered the use of native grasses, but also some of the perennial evergreen shrubs that I've looked at in recent PhD research. And also Dan Falkenberg and his father, um, Ian, have also been very active in terms of using native grasses. So I looked at three in particular. Um, two shrubs, so one is a Christmas bush, Berserius minosa, which flowers around Christmas time, so from late November right through January into February, and uh, has a fantastic um, range of small flowers that provide both pollen and nectar. There's another plant called Prickly tea tree which is Leptospermum continentale, which is fantastic as well. That starts flowering as early as August. So if we combine those two plants, we've potentially got flowering of over six or seven months. And we know if we introduce either of those two plants uh, in association with vineyards, that we can get a quadrupling, so three times the functional biodiversity of those good bugs or the predatory arthropods that we're really wanting to be able to contribute to biological control at really key times in the vineyard, especially over the flowering and fruit set period all the way through until until vintage. The other um, I guess focus is at ground level looking at a range of wallaby grasses, so their scientific name is Rotitisperma and um, there's a real diversity again of species that will grow in different sites and we know with these wallaby grasses that we'll get a whole range of different ecosystem benefits including insectary benefits. We know that we'll get a net increase of around 27% of predatory arthropods and that includes um, spiders and a whole range of other insects that we might not necessarily find in the canopy but are really important again for that biocontrol of some of the key pests like light brown apple moth grapevine scale, mealybug and so on.
0: And wallaby grass doesn't compete with the grapevines does it? Um, there's been some research
2: done lo- locally and in, in its inception in terms of the first year there can be a little bit of competition but when you look at that over a 10 year period and you factor that in it tends to bounce back the other way within year 2 and 3. So I think in terms of the benefits of wallaby grass If um, we can manage that down just while it's establishing, perhaps in the first one or two seasons, we get a whole lot of other benefits. It means that we don't have to intervene in the vineyard as often compared to perhaps a traditional cover crop where we're having to to work the soil up, um, purchase seed, Um, do the herbiciding, plant the crop and then slash it. So it's a a really good example of how we can break that cycle. And we've got a good case study on that here. Dan Falkenberg for for example um, was um, planting triticale on an annual basis. I think it was costing about $600 a year to be able to do all of those practices. There was an underlying challenge with some weed species and he also was spraying for light brown apple moth in his Grenache. On an annual basis, so he actually changed completely his management um, focus, and he uh, incorporated some of these native grasses, the wallaby grasses, and he found actually that he broke even by year three to year four, and he hadn't, he didn't need to then intervene after that period. He found a whole range of other benefits as well. Um, He was able to out compete uh, wireweed, um, cowtrop, salvation jane once those grasses were established, and he didn't have to spray for light brown apple apple moth anymore in the Grenache. So, we know that uh, these wallaby grasses provide a breeding site for the brown lacewings, and we see really high levels of wolf spiders um, at that level as well.
0: Yeah, so with the Becerra spinosa and the lamandras and things, where do you actually plant them in the vineyard? And you know, obviously, growers used to plant roses at the end of the vineyard rows, perhaps they should be planting natives at the end of the vineyard rows, what do you think? Yeah I couldn't agree more and um, we've got some
2: really good underpinning science for those three species so we're encouraging growers to be able to you know, start um, small and um, to trial some of those plants on their own properties but we don't want to limit them just to those you know, three species. So again the functional biodiversity is the key and um, there's a whole range of ways that we can incorporate those plants. So traditionally, say if we start at ground level, there's the wallaby grass in the mid row, but we've also got some really good trial work to, to use uh, wallaby grasses in the undervine area and especially a subspecies that grows low called geniculatum. On Dan's property, he's just started to oversow the mid-row with a multi-species mix of about 20 different species of native grasses and also forbs. So he's now boosting also that biodiversity at that level. Other growers may have an existing windbreak that they have a single species and it may be getting a bit old now. So to be able to boost the diversity there and also the strata at ground level in the mid-storey is a a fantastic way that growers can boost what they've already got in terms of structures. And Prue has been really pioneering in terms of planting um, Christmas bush at the end of strainer posts, planting lamandra, which is iron grass in the undervine area and there's a whole range of different ground covers like Bubiella, which is myoporum which is a ground cover which does really well and also um, fanflower, scovola and a whole range of different salt bushes which can be planted as ground covers in the mid row and the undervine area so we've got um, a tremendous opportunity to be adventurous and to be able to continue to trial out these plants and see how they perform.
0: And it's not I mean we're not just saying to growers go out and have a go at this and see what happens we've actually got quite a few years now of research haven't we which shows that it is beneficial to have these plants in the vineyard. Yeah the, the underpinning science that we have is for a reasonably small suite of plants
2: but the observations that I made when I did my PhD was that where we have a great level of biodiversity we are consistently getting higher numbers of the predators the good bugs that we're looking for compared to herbivores or those insects that might nibble on the leaves of say grapevines and they don't tend to harbour any of the the key pests that we're particularly concerned about so we have confidence that we can apply that knowledge we also know that about 90 percent of Australia's flora and fauna is endemic so if we're planting native plants they're naturally adapted they're used to our dry, Aussie conditions and we're also going to attract or find in association those good bugs which are native, which naturally co-evolve with those plants. It's really going back to nature and observing nature and working with nature so that we can work smarter rather than harder and not have to intervene as often. Does it
0: take a lot of time, Mary, to establish these things and, you know, is a lot of work for growers to, to do all this? or is it? An initial setup and then sort of let it go? How does it, how does it work? You know, we've got
2: tremendous resources through local nurseries. So we have the Barossa Bush Gardens, there's the Kersbrook Landcare Nursery, we also have um, native seeds um, who produce a lot of this grass seed. So we now have at our fingertips really good quality planting material or, or quality of seeds that we're able to access. And we also have much um, greater knowledge in terms of how to establish these plants and where they'll they'll grow go well so yes it does take uh, an initial financial and time commitment to set these plants up I think the benefits become evident really quickly we've got a range of different pests and diseases that we we have in terms of challenges in uh, in vineyards you know for example light brown apple moth costs up to 18 million dollars a year across Australia in terms of lost production and light brown apple moth is a, a little green caterpillar that once it gets into the developing bunches of grapes can predispose those bunches to botrytis and other bunch rots that cost the sector about $52 million a year across Australia. So $70 million hit so if we can potentially you know kind of head off that damage by managing that insect pest and doing it naturally um, we can potentially um, save a lot of potential economic loss so it's understanding the dynamics of those relationships um, and what insects we need to encourage in order to get the benefit there's potentially thousands of little workers in the vineyard that can do that you know job for us for free if we just understand how to attract and to look after them
0: shall we walk over to here yeah
1: very well said. So what
0: have we got over here Sean? In this spot here? What's this re-veg all about?
1: So this little re-veg area we started it's probably about five years ago now. Yeah. I guess when, when you're talking about you know re-veg in uh, and you're talking about I guess trying to get more natural biodiversity around your vineyards there, there's also things to consider for example we've sort of looked at little buffer zones around the vineyard so um, when you're talking about sort of a bit more larger scale. I guess trying to harbour more of those natural beneficial insects. One of the things we've found out the mopper, a lot of people say one of the dangers also with, because obviously a, a lover of birds, um, also. Be, there's also uh, certain bird species that'll like to nibble on the grapes. But what we've found out here by increasing the natural vegetation is we've actually found a really nice balance here. Uh, we have three, four species of birds of prey Uh, We have a a peregrine falcon that used to nest on this site. We have goshawks and so forth that naturally move through this area and and sort of get that natural balance. So we really don't have any issues with um, I guess those bird species uh, like say for example an Adelaide Rosella that can be quite destructive in the Adelaide Hills and uh, Eden Valley where quite often nets need to be employed but but here we have a really nice sort of natural balance uh, and again, just by um, increasing the you know the the area, it's it's not just it also helps to keep. I think there's research around you know, the more trees too, with keeping um, you know, the, I guess your ground temperature a little bit cooler and um, and things like that. So yeah, so it's been it's been a uh, and it's certainly uh, patches to still work with, continue on with.
0: Sean, look at the sky. It's full of birds. Oh, you don't usually see that in the Barossa. Um, just a whole sky full of birds like this
1: what this site as I mentioned uh, earlier you know we have up to recorded 66 close possibly even close now the 70 bird species that inhabit not always permanently here but certainly uh, have been recorded on this site and if you're looking at yeah now we've got probably hundreds of fairy martens just picking off the insects and I guess um, as Mary is saying that she discovered a lot of Arthropods on this site. I guess there's a great food source not only on the ground and uh, up in the air as well. So I'm assuming they're chasing insect species, and I'm not sure, Mary, what they'd be chasing up there, but, um, um, but certainly, um, yeah, I mean, there'd be, there'd be hundreds.
0: It's quite a sight to see, actually.
2: And nature marches on, so at, even at this time of the year we have a lot of species that are kind of in the dormancy period but others are also you know, about to start their new generations. So even at this time we've just seen that there's a predatory shield bug, even though that's a fantastic bug that we want in the vineyard, it's also a food source for species like lizards, um, microbats, which can eat up to half their body weight and insects every night, insectivorous birds, which in turn become food for um, predatory bird species and perhaps raptors too.
1: Yes, and I just noticed some uh, welcome swallows as well there. So yeah, two two species just having a great time. But we find with lizards. Um, I particularly have a an interest in lizard species here, and I oh, that we have to we'll just go around because that fence is electric too. By the way, <laughs> we don't um, want to drop that, But we have we mostly hand pick. Yeah. But when we machine pick, we actually have. Spotters. So this particular vineyard's hand, uh, machine picked. One of the very few that we um, we picked that way. So we have a, a spotter to any lizards that might come through with the machining process. Actually, they get rescued. Yeah. And quite often, that's why part of the reason I developed this area with the rocks and so forth, and uh, that was where I generally placed them. But oh. surprisingly, on a six-acre vineyard that's machine picked, we will. Approximately three beta dragons each harvest. Wow. So you, you can imagine the scale of the problem machine harvesting can, can have.
2: And some of those rocky areas are fantastic habitat for not only the lizards, but also a whole range of different spiders as well. So while we're talking about habitat, um, rock formations are, are a really fantastic way to be able to boost um, some of that habitat as well.
1: Yeah, I've, I've, I've found it. I think, Mary, when you did so, the, the uh, survey up, Um, In that um, salt bush up there, you discovered there was a a really high number of arthropods up there, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I um, I used a a vacuum sampler and um, you just saw the size of the container that I used then. Um, I was literally getting up to half of one of those containers full. And there were a whole range of insects which were... Probably more so passing through. They weren't particularly predators or herbivores. Yes. Um, but they provided a really valuable food source for a whole range of other, you know, insects that would eat them. Yes. But I found parasitic wasps there. So the parasitic wasps are particularly important for biocontrol of light brown apple moth. Yes. Yes. Grapevine scale and also millibug.
1: I had noticed that the wasp, but something that I've noticed and it's probably for you know, if I can even think back to. When I purchased from my father in two thousand one, that there was a lot of those wasps here. I always used to yeah, yeah. wonder what they were, but there, there you go.
2: Yeah, they're tiny. Most of the insects are really, really small, but they really pack a punch in terms of you know the value that they provide in a vineyard setting. Even here at this time of the year, um, sometimes you'll see a native species of ladybird called the common spotted ladybird hanging out on the cordon. So. Even now, while everything looks dormant, there's still kind of activity ha- Life. Yeah, there's still life in the vineyard. Are they your
0: sheep?
1: Yes. Oh, oh gosh. My father's sheep, yes. Okay. So, so he,
0: he runs that side of it? Yes, he does. Yeah.
1: And, and again, that's uh, another area where we will graze them in the vineyard. Yep. Um, just prior to bud burst. Yep. Um, and then it's um, surprising how well they mow that, again, because at the moment, I mean, we, you know, we're still a little, little bit behind the overall, you know, if you start talking about native grasses, you know, really vineyards are really dominated by weeds these days. And unless you're going down, say, Dan Falconby's path and trying to really get the native grasses up, and that's something that certainly is, is, we'd like to do at some point. So, yeah, the sheep do an amazing job of mowing down. You know, uh, and then for me, just come along with a dodger or um, yeah. just, just knife and you haven't got a, a lot of weed to contend with because yeah. the sheep have pretty much mowed most of it down.
2: I think we're learning to really value the natural resources a whole lot more and see them in a different light so where perhaps growers saw um, remnant vegetation in the past of not having any value, the scientific research just demonstrates just how valuable that resource is in terms of being able to help boost things like biocontrol. We know that in a fragmented landscape the natural biological control can drop by anything as much as 46 per cent so there's a lot going on in those re-veg areas that we may not be
1: aware of. Well, I know when I took over this property, you know, one that area was like I said. If we we can even just have a quick look just into that quarry zone and and pretty much all those small shirks, you saw, I mean they weren't there. It was everything was just taken out by sheep over the yep. probably the last 20, 30 years prior to that. So I've found in nearly 20 years now, I've I've found that it's taken to to start seeing. Uh, the benefit it, it, it's a long process and even for example for the first time last year or you know two years ago we had three calcip orchids come up because orchids as you're probably aware yeah. something that take is very difficult to regenerate naturally so we uh, this year we had about a better count of about 20 so wow. which so and you know prior to that it took yes yeah, so virtually say 18 years to rediscover the calcip orchids.
2: And don't the shea aches provide a fantastic habitat for endangered species like diamond t- t- uh, firetail finches and the yellow-tailed glossy black cockatoo?
1: Uh, certainly um, in this area here I one of the one of the main areas one of the main reasons i um, certain species I've planted has been focused for the diamond firetails because yep. we actually I remember my first bird survey here was in 1991 as a as uh, I would have been probably about 15 or so, and um, and I I had I remember quite clearly uh, we used to have probably close to 20 diamond firetails that naturally inhabited this this scrub. And interesting over over time that number virtually dwindled to virtually very rarely spotting a diamond firetail. And I think that was probably because there was a lot of grazing, heavy grazing, and since 2001 with, um, you know, with uh, obviously allowing that natural revegetation to regrow, I've sort of now see probably not quite as many as I say did, you know, pre 91 or about around about 91, but now you can see up to about 10 firetails. Yeah. Um, and you're always seeing groups of two, three, four, quite regularly on the property Yeah. as well as that hooded robins is another one. That's another bird species I'm trying to encourage. Her. we, um, we recorded about 10 hooded robins on the site uh, probably about two years ago.
2: Yep, mm. And also the, um, the saltbush is a fantastic example of fire resistant plants. So it's quite topical just with um, some of the extreme weather events and the higher propensity of fires as well as you know, these plants hold a lot of moisture so they're not going to combust as readily.
1: And do you know this one? Do you know this species, Mary? Because that this is, I believe, looks a like bush. Ma-
2: looks like Mariana setifolia or something like that.
1: If you look at this, is all to me. If you ever look through here, we need to we need to weed this now. But it's just
2: natural recruitment. Yeah,
1: look at it. I just think it's amazing how this has come up. Mm. Uh, and I don't know if it's planted mm. in the original plantings. Um, so where did it come from? Uh, yeah, I mean, this soil was actually put here from when we dug the dam site out. And these rocks were actually out of that dam site there. So that's where we, and, and again, we've some of those rescued bearded dragons that, uh, that I actually place here. Got great rocks for shelter. And, and, they, and, and you know, when you see this saltbush, especially the ruby saltbush, all that little red fruit, they just, you know, there's a great food source here for them.
2: And it looks stunning too, doesn't it?
1: It <laughs> yeah. certainly does. The only one Don Helbig said to me, this has to come out, he said, it's apparently not native this one. I'm not sure what it is but he, uh, his suggestion was it should come out because he believes it's found only one place down near the Murray Mouth. So I'm not sure. So That's one that we, we did plant so perhaps it does need to get removed.
2: But on an area where you've got pretty lean soil um, it's obviously thriving so yeah. it's a pretty diverse um, plant that can again add to that functionality and the benefits.
1: But the plan for this whole site is, you know, we've only really just started on this one and it's a lot of work to be done. If you can see that little fenced off here, we do have some native wallaby grass in that little pod area. Uh, we need to increase that uh, maybe look at um, maybe direct seeding. And I think maybe uh, we need to look at that in a bit more of a larger scale and just and, and try and manage those weeds and then get that, uh, Get those grasses in. I'd like to see this and then also not just uh, grasses but look at other native species to the area that would naturally occur here yep. and, and really get the density up and I think that's one thing Jamie mentioned about um, again and, and is certainly aware with what we've done over at the re re-vegetated area to my left is getting that diversity up and that density up also helps with, uh, with the bird species.
2: And you're able to access a pre-European plant species list um, quite readily to be able to help inform some of the selection of the species that were here before we modified
0: the landscape too. So that's that's all available. So thanks Mary and Sean for talking to us today about your participation in Wildlife for Wine in the Barossa. Um, Good luck with the rest of the project for you Sean and Mary your continued work is just so valuable to everybody so thank you again for your contribution and um, watch the space I guess. Thanks.
1: Yes, thank you.
0: Thanks, Nikki. Thanks for joining us in this Wildlife for Wine podcast brought to you by Barossa Grape and Wine Association and supported by Northern and York Landscape Board. For more information about this program, you can connect with us at barossawine.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, join us for two more in the series where we talk with Australian native bird expert Ian Falkenberg and Barossa grower Evan Goebel about the benefits of planting natives in and around vineyards and to bat expert Terry Reardon and Seffoldsfield winemaker Matthew Pick about microbats in Barossa Vineyards.